individually, most stocks are actually terrible investments, delivering returns that don't even exceed cash despite huge volatility. So there is no tide that lifts all boats. There are only choppy seas that sink the majority of boats while guiding a small number of them to the promised land. Welcome to episode 22 of the Canadian Couch Potato Podcast, where we help you become a better investor with index funds and ETFs. I'm Dan Bordelotti. Perhaps the most important trend in the ETF marketplace during the last decade or so has been the emergence of what is called smart beta, which can be thought of as a middle ground between active investing and traditional indexing. Old school active management is about concentrating in a relatively small number of individual stocks, or it's about forecasting the markets and repositioning the portfolio appropriately. And of course, traditional indexing is based on buying the entire market and staying invested at all times, generally using index funds that weight each company according to its size. Larger companies get a proportionally larger share, a strategy called capitalization weighting or cap weighting. Smart beta strategies fall somewhere in between because they're based on the idea that you can improve returns by building indexes that exclude some companies and weight the remaining ones in ways other than by their size in the market. So there's definitely an attempt to do better than traditional index funds, but the rules are systematic and consistently applied. So there's no superstar fund manager making idiosyncratic decisions with all of the behavioral risk that that entails. Now, I remain an advocate of traditional indexing because it carries lower cost, less complexity, and in most cases encourages better investor behavior. But smart beta is now so common in the marketplace that all ETF investors can benefit from an understanding of what it is, as well as its potential benefits and pitfalls. So for this episode of the podcast, I invited John West, head of client strategies for research affiliates, the California-based firm that created fundamental indexes, which were the basis for some of the first smart beta ETFs. Now, before we jump into the interview, I thought it would be helpful to provide some background. Smart beta strategies, sometimes called factor investing, are designed to give additional weight to stocks with certain characteristics that promise higher risk-adjusted returns. And there's lots of evidence to suggest that at least a few of these are real. For example, value stocks, or those that have low prices relative to their fundamentals, have delivered higher returns over the very long term, though certainly not over every period. There's also evidence that small company stocks, or small caps, have outperformed large company stocks over some long periods. Research over the last 20 years or so has suggested that there are other so-called factors that may offer investors higher expected returns, or at least higher risk-adjusted returns, than the broad market. So these include stocks with low volatility, upward momentum, high quality, which can be defined in many ways, and others. As the market for plain vanilla index funds has become saturated, ETF providers are now focusing on new funds that seek to improve on the traditional models by tapping into one or more of these factors, and these strategies have collectively been known as smart beta. Now, I'll warn you, there's some jargon in our interview, which is hard to avoid when you talk about smart beta, but I think you'll enjoy John's take on how to evaluate these strategies and decide whether there's something you want to pursue. And I'm very pleased to welcome to the podcast, John West from Research Affiliates, who joins us on the line from California. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dan. Nice to be here. John, let's start with a brief introduction to the term smart beta. How would you define this term? It's a lot of, you know, sort of industry jargon, but what does it mean to you? 
It was not coined by uh, by our firm, Research Affiliates. It was first coined by the consulting firm Towers Watson, uh, the largest uh, investment consulting firm in the world, uh, that said something along the lines of that smart beta is really about taking well-known investment concepts and structuring them better. And so, for example... Uh, things that, uh, like value investing that has been done for years by active managers, how can we systematize that, um, and really strip out the high cost, uh, subjective stock picking and really get into what sort of the common traits of value investing and deliver it, uh, at a really low cost in an index chassis. Okay. So the goal of, of choosing smart beta strategies though is to outperform traditional index benchmarks. I think that's fair to say. And with that in mind, why not just call it active management? Well, I, I, I might push back a little bit. You know, low volatility strategies, which are a popular smart beta strategy, I think are, um, uh, although some people claim to outperform, you know, I, I would probably say their, their more reasonable expectation is to, is to reduce risk. So, um, uh, you know, I think uh, not all smart beta strategies are designed to, you know, to, get, to give you an excess return. Why not call it active management? Look, I'm not going to get into the definitional police here. Uh, if you want to say that anything that deviates from the market portfolio is active management, I have no problem whatsoever calling uh, smart beta uh, active management. Uh, now, it comes with important advantages, as Towers uh, delineated in their definition, that if you structure something in an index chassis, it puts massive downward pressure on uh, on fees, and uh, you know you're really not paying for someone to uh, uh, make the subjective decisions of what stocks to buy and when. You're simply relying upon these rules that have been vetted uh, through very long-term research about uh, what what tends to produce excess returns in the market over the long term, such as value investing. Yeah, I think it's fair to say it. I certainly didn't mean to imply that that was any kind of judgment. I mean, the idea that there's this kind of continuum between passive management and active management, and almost every strategy falls somewhere in in between there. It's very unlikely for it to be all the way to one uh, one extreme. Um, but I guess the idea is that it's a certain sort of active management, but with a very systematic rules-based approach as opposed to one that uh, is dependent on an individual's own whims and intuitions and things like that. Yeah, I think that's right. I like your I like your description that things are a continuum uh, from um, you know Bill Sharp's theoretical market portfolio, which includes everything you can possibly invest in, uh, all the way to um, you know an individual that owns one stock that's making you know a big bet on uh, on a particular uh, uh, security. Now, one of the criticisms of smart beta strategies from people who are, let's say, indexing purists is that uh, they rely heavily on backtests. I mean, people often joke that, you know, you, you never see a backtest that doesn't look good because you don't see the backtests that don't work out, right, after the, uh, after the academic research has been complete. Um, at the far end, I mean, I don't like to use this term lightly, but some people have even accused researchers of data mining, you know, just sort of looking around until they found something that worked, whether or not there was any rigorous uh, analysis behind that. Um, so how would you respond to that criticism and what sort of robustness do you look for in the data before you can really identify a premium in a certain strategy? Uh, I, I, look, I think it's an incredibly fair uh, criticism. Uh, research affiliates launched Fundamental Index uh, back in, towards the end of 2004. A lot of people say that was the first smart beta. Uh, 
14 years later, uh, it's an incredibly hot topic, and you have uh, you know people launching these strategies so quickly and so uh, uh, with so much fanfare that you should take a really hard look at uh, uh, at the strategies uh, and whether they're going to live up to uh, the historical backtests, particularly if these historical backtests are 10 years in one geography. So skepticism should absolutely rule the day when you're looking at smart beta uh, strategies, just like skepticism should rule the day when you're looking at active strategies. Uh, so uh, where should you start? Uh, the first thing is you should really have a theory behind why this excess return is going to persist. If you as a smart beta investor are winning by, say, 1% to 2% per year, that means there has to be a loser on the other side of the trade that is going to consistently be there. What's in it for them? Um, so you really have to say, who's going to be on the other side of the trade, and uh, why do we expect this return to persist? Uh, as uh, uh, one of our academic advisors, Cam Harvey, uh, says, you know, there has to be economic plausibility before you even run the back test. Uh, what's your theory of why this will persist? And then you want the data to back up that theory. And you want the data to back up that theory in two very important ways. The first one is you want it to work in many different markets across many different market cycles. So just don't test it in the U.S. Test it in, uh, in Canada. Test it in Australia. Test it in the U.K. Test it in Germany. Test it in Japan. You know, large developed uh, uh, markets that have fairly long track records of good data. Then also twist the definition. Start to perturb the definition a little bit. So, for example, if you're looking at value, don't just look at, say, price to book. Don't just look at, uh, say, price to sales. Does it work across a variety of different definitions? If you only get one definition that's, that produces really high excess returns, chances are you either are uh, explicitly or uh, uh, unknowingly doing some data mining. So once we have a good theory the data across many different markets over long cycles, uh, and also if we twist the definition, start moving it around a little bit, um, and you still get the results, that's where we would say, hey, we think we've got something here. Yeah, so that's a very thorough sort of rigorous process, and I think it's really important. It sort of leads into the next question that I wanted to ask you too, which is because – you know, as you said, you needed to have this kind of economic plausibility was the term you, you use, which I really like. Um, and not all of the sort of factors that have been identified necessarily have an easy explanation, uh, at least not if you look at compensation for risk, for example. I mean, sort of the classic ones, the earliest factors to be identified is, you know, small cap stocks outperform. You can make a pretty good argument that small companies have a higher cost of capital, therefore they're a little bit riskier. So investors in small caps are being compensated for that additional risk. That doesn't necessarily follow with some of the other factors like low volatility, for example, which as you mentioned, isn't necessarily about higher return, but higher risk-adjusted return. And then the other one would be something like the quality factor, which screens for companies with you know excellent balance sheets and things like that. That's almost counterintuitive because why, for example, would an investor be compensated for investing in a company that has low debt, high profits, et cetera? So is there sometimes a behavioral explanation for some of these premiums as well? Yeah, so I would say that... Um we at Research Affiliates really believe there's probably four of these factors. Uh, value, 
which you could either take a Fama French view that it's a that's a risk factor um, and you're you know being compensated for distress risk, or more uh, what we think at Research Affiliates is really driven by behavior that people have certain structural constraints of um, not wanting to own stocks with a lot of bad news and, you know, three to five year watch lists and people saying, you know, I got to get rid of the strategy. It's done so poorly. Um, and so they tend to just be sort of long-term return chasers, which just means you're going to sell what's done poorly and buy what's, uh, what's done well. So, you know, that's, I think, the, the story behind value. So value is probably the one that is, is, you know, in both camps have a pretty good sense of like, hey, yeah, we think there's something here. And the risk-based explanation is, uh, in, yeah, I think, has some merit, as does the behavioral. Uh, interestingly, small company stocks, you mentioned they give you higher returns, but when you adjust for risk, uh, there really isn't much difference between owning a small company index and a large company index if you just lever the large company index up to, you know, the volatility of small companies. So small is actually one that we really don't think just by buying small company stocks, you're actually going to get a higher risk-adjusted return. Uh, so I mentioned value. That's one. Uh, low volatility is uh, is one that we believe in. Um, again, it's probably not something where you're going to get huge excess returns from it, but you will get a higher sharp ratio um, because of the volatility reduction. Um, and it's well documented that, that high beta stocks actually, contrary to CAPM, don't give you um, the, uh, the excess returns um, that you would expect. It's actually lower volatility stocks give you slightly higher returns. Uh, the theory there is is really this this lottery ticket that people will pay up for big positive skew. They'll pay up. They'll they'll, they'll overprice assets that have the, the the potential to give you really outsized returns, and so they tend to just over structurally overpay for higher beta stocks. So that's low volatility. Uh, momentum is uh, is is something that is this notion of under investor underreaction to uh, uh, to news. So it's really a behavioral type of story. Uh, and momentum, no matter how you define it, tends to give you excess returns. Um, the trick with momentum is it tends to um, most of the excess returns just get eaten away by transaction costs. Uh, so. Uh, yeah, that's the trick. The momentum uh, is implying it in the real world, but we do believe that it's 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 got a plausible theory and it, it it holds up to all the robustness checks. So value, low volatility, momentum, and then quality. Quality is one that that we spent gosh about four, five, six years really getting aligned around around what is quality. Why do we expect it to produce excess returns? Quality is the one that is probably there's a, as many. I mean, there's probably 40, 50 different definitions of quality. What we've centered on is stocks with high amounts of profitability that do very low investment. So these are companies that um, you know, have a lot of profits, but they tend to be um, uh, rather judicious and rather careful and, and therefore not all that exciting in terms of their investment. And so those companies just tend to get ignored by the market. Why wow, you got these profits? You're a smart management team. Why don't you invest? You ought to invest more. Uh, and the companies that tend to uh, uh, have lower profits but do a ton of investment, maybe have a big upward spike in their stock price, people tend to fall in love with those managements and overpay for them. So uh, those are the four factors we believe in. Uh, uh, the first three are pretty pretty well known. The fourth one, quality, is a little bit nuanced. I'll, uh, I'll certainly grant you that, Dan. <laughs> 
All right. So let's get into talking about some of the challenges of investing using smart beta strategy because you've written some really good articles about this topic. Um, let's start with the fact that anytime you deviate from a traditional cap-weighted index approach, you're going to inevitably have higher transaction costs, more turnover, potentially more taxes as well. Uh, you mentioned that, for example, that that has always been the challenge of capturing momentum. I don't think anybody denies that uh, that it makes a lot of sense that um, a momentum strategy can work in theory, but in practice, it often gets eaten up by those transaction costs. So how easy is it for costs to overwhelm premiums when you're investing using these strategies? I think the transaction costs and how these portfolios are built uh, is probably the most important due diligence you should do if you're looking at smart beta strategies. How often do they rebalance? What's their starting universe? Is that starting universe constructed with large liquid names? Uh, or do, does the strategy tend to do most of its trading in smaller names, in names that have less liquidity? Um, and looking at uh, that really can give you a sense of what's your likely expected ex, you know, transaction cost from a strategy. Um, the easiest thing to forecast when doing due diligence on any, any strategy, smart beta, active, or index, is the expense ratio, Right. Your next easiest thing to do is, well, how much am I likely going to get in transaction costs, which you can forecast with a fair amount of accuracy. Um, so uh, if you're judicious about uh, uh, these things, you can, um, you, know, if you can probably, the broad fundamental index, which is our headline strategy, probably has, you know, five to ten basis points, uh, depending on the market you're applying it, maybe a little bit more for emerging markets and small companies, of expected transaction costs. That's the additional trading that is generated um, by the strategy. Uh, some poorly constructed smart data strategies can have expected transaction costs of 50, 100, and we've even seen some in the 150 to 200 basis point range uh, at $10 billion of scale. That's a ton. And what, how do you get that? Well, you get that with really high amounts of annual turnover and trading really small names. So if you have a strategy that's, that's similar to equal weight that maybe has 50 or 100 stocks and it's constantly redefining on how it uh, uh, classifies, let's say, low volatility or momentum, you can very easily hit those numbers. So it's an important thing to take a look at. But if you're careful and deliberate, and, uh, and, and rebalance um, uh, uh, less frequently, um, then I think you can still preserve a lot of the excess returns that are in these uh, historical back tests, importantly the ones that are done right with the robustness checks I talked about earlier. Okay, now an even greater challenge, I think, uh, than cost is behavior because, you know, even if you believe that um, the smart beta strategy that you're using will lead to outperformance over the very long term, it's virtually certain that there's going to be significant periods of disappointment along the way. And that's true of virtually any investment strategy, of course. And but I think it's important that we that we say here that you know we're not talking about a year or two of down markets. Now, can you give us some idea of how long these periods of underperformance can be when you're looking to capture certain smart beta premiums? Sure. So uh, let me just say that any strategy is going to have variability to it. Uh, we can talk about investing in the stock market has variability to it. Uh, you know, in the U.S. market in February of 2009, U.S. stocks had underperformed long U.S. government bonds for not 
the last 10 years, because we're coming off the global financial crisis, not the last 20 years, not even the last 25 years, not the last 30 years. For 40 years, in February of 2009, U.S. stocks had trailed U.S. long government bonds. Does that mean that the history showed that stocks underperformed bonds? Well, of course not. So every strategy has, has variability. When we talk about strategies that are designed to produce an excess return, that variability is really relative variability. How much relative variability are you going to have to the headline cap-weighted index? Now, on active strategies, my colleague Amy Cohen and I did a piece about five years ago, and we looked at the, I think it was four mutual funds that uh, had outperformed the S&P 500 in the U.S. Uh, by about 2% per year, net of all fees and expenses. 25 to 33% of the time, those strategies were underperforming over rolling five-year periods. That's for the best of the best, assuming right. you, could, you could find them 40 years ago. So variability, whether we're talking about asset classes or managers, is inherent. Uh, and smart beta is really no different. Um, I figured uh, that the uh, we, we have um, approximately 30 different smart beta strategies on our interactive smart beta website um, at researchaffiliates.com. And of these 30, remember, these are predominantly back-tested strategies. So most of the, uh, as you noted earlier, Dan, most of the history, quote-unquote, is nothing that anybody experienced. It, it was experienced on uh, on a computer. Uh, so even these with back-tests, 15% of the time they're underperforming on 10-year periods. So you're just going to get that degree of variability. I'd probably say it's probably going to be more like 25% of the time they're going to be underperforming over 10-year periods. And that's when you really have to establish the investment beliefs. Say, I believe in the plausibility of this strategy. I'm going to own that decision and not assume that the smart beta suddenly has, quote-unquote, lost its touch or is no longer applicable in today's market. Uh, I was on a panel recently on value investing, and they said, well, value hasn't worked for 10 years. Does that you know, change your opinion? And I said, value investing is working exactly the way it should. It will go through periods like this. Um, so just like the equity investor shouldn't give up in February of 2009 uh, because equities had underperformed bonds for 40-year periods, neither should the smart beta investor give up over certainly a one, two-year. If you're going to give up on a strategy over one and two years, just put all your money in cap weighting. I'll make it real easy for you. Yeah, or put all of your money in cash or something like that, because uh, I, I think you're right. I mean, any, any expectation for persistent, reliable, consistent outperformance is a recipe for disappointment. I saw a smart beta purveyor uh, uh, offer a webinar, and they said, if you actually do smart beta in this and this way with multiple different factors, uh, and you do sector neutrality, and you adjust for leverage, uh, they said uh, that will that would have produced a four percent excess return and would have outperformed each of the last ten years. Well, wow. uh, if that's your <laughs> expectation for smart beta, just don't do it. Well, I wonder if that is is part of the problem. It's it's not the strategies and it's not the academic research. It's the way the strategies are marketed and it's the expectations that investors have, um, you know, after seeing these sales presentations like the ones you just described. Um, and this is a question that, I, that I've had from, from clients and from readers of mine. You know, they say things like, you know, if you're worried about there being a variability in, in the premiums from smart beta showing up, it's really no different from using a traditional index approach. Because as you mentioned, for example, you know, there have been very long periods where stocks have underperformed bonds. And you don't hear a lot of people saying that this represents a fundamental shift and no one should invest in stocks anymore because you're not rewarded for the additional risk. 
I think it's a little bit different though when you layer on some active decisions. There's an extra expectation, I think, of not just what the markets give, but what the product provider, what the advisor, you know, is giving you as well. And you've written a lot about this, the, you know, the danger of uh, advisors um, or people who are hired by pension funds, for example, to manage money, you know, have this sort of three-year expectation or window uh, to evaluate strategies, and they give up after that period. And virtually any strategy you know, equity-based strategy needs longer than three years to be evaluated. So how do you deal with those sorts of challenges as a, as a company who's, you know, creating these products and strategies? Uh, so I'm glad you asked this. One of the things that you tend to find on why these strategies vacillate, uh, these styles go in and out of favor, is relative valuation. So if a strategy has done really poorly for a long time period, chances are just like an asset class, just like stocks in, in early 09 were, were trading at, at valuations we you know, essentially hadn't seen since the early 80s, they'd become extraordinarily cheap. And so strategies that go on a terrific run, unless you turn over the whole portfolio, chances are, whether it's an active manager or a smart beta strategy, all of the stocks that are in that portfolio have become more expensive relative to the market, right? If something is outperformed, and again, assuming you haven't turned over the entire portfolio, um, you're going to have a portfolio that relative to your starting point is more richly valued and therefore is probably poised to not do as well in the future. Uh, conversely, a strategy that is done very poorly um, over an extended multi-year period probably those stocks are trading at a discount relative to where they were at the start of the period. So what we've done, uh, again, on uh, the Smart Beta Interactive to more appropriately frame expectations is to not just say, what is the long-term 40-year return for this particular strategy in this particular market? What that hides is it hides maybe if this strategy become really richly priced relative to its history and therefore is likely to give you lower returns. Low volatility strategies in early 2009 had given you brilliant performance over the trailing one, three, five, and ten years. But they are also trading in their 98th percentile, their 98th richest percentile relative to the cap-weighted index. Is that a strategy you think is going to continue to do well that's so incredibly highly priced relative to its history, or a strategy you think is actually poised to probably give you lower returns relative to what you experienced from the recent past. So asking questions about the relative valuation of a strategy, whether it be an active strategy, but more importantly for smart beta, since everything is rules-based, you can actually go and extend the history on these on these strategies to many, many decades in the past across multiple, again, across multiple different markets. So you can have a good understanding of where it trades relative to history. And that's going to really shape your forward-looking expectations, especially if you start to net out the transaction costs. And so a lot of the work we've been doing at Research Affiliates starting in 2010, 2011 was surveying all of the claims that we're seeing in smart beta. And what we did with this particular website is put them all on the same page, all on the same rebalance date, uh, all with the same universe so that you can get a good sense of which of these strategies are likely to do better in the future. Because when you line them all up and go back to the 60s in the U.S. and call it the mid-80s in, uh, in developed markets, uh, they all, every single one of them gives you an excess return on gross of transaction costs. 
But when you actually net out transaction costs and say, where are they trading today? More like maybe 50 to 60% of them are off, you know, today in our minds are going to give you an excess return. And a lot of them are actually probably priced to give you a, a, a negative excess return. Now, one of the final challenges that I wanted to ask you about when it comes to, um, you know, if you're a smart beta investor is choosing products that actually reflect your convictions, right? So we, we talked at the top of the conversation about how you tell what's a real factor from one that's just kind of an uh, anomaly in the data. Um, but once you've got some conviction, so let's say, for example, we accept your, your four factors that you believe in value, low vol, momentum, and quality. If you're an investor looking for an ETF that uses one of more of these strategies, you know, you'll find so-and-so's value ETF uses different criteria than another provider's value ETF, and they might be really quite different. Uh, you mentioned, for example, quality has, you know, innumerable definitions of what exactly that means. Um, I know when I looked at these, sometimes the term quality in an ETF name is just used as a kind of general generic term rather than in its factor-specific definition. Um you know, momentum, for example, all kinds of different ways to try to capture that premium. So if you're not a CFA and a professional analyst, you know, what is the investor to make of all of these decisions? And how do you resist, you know, the obvious one, which is look at whichever one did well for the past three years and pick that one? Please don't do the latter. It's uh, <laughs> the, <first, laughs> the first rule. You know, look, I mean, I think you need to do due diligence on these. And if you don't have, uh, you don't want to put the time in to do, do, you know, proper due diligence on, uh, you know, what are well thought of, well constructed, well thought of, um, uh, smart beta, uh, products, um, you're probably going to get yourself in trouble because as you mentioned, if I'm not going to do the hard work, I'm going to do the easy work. What's the easy work? You know, jump on your computer, jump on a database, uh, and run the, you know, run the performance. That is incredibly easy. It takes 10 minutes. If, if that's all it took to outperform the market, you know, um, you want to be, uh, as high on as you are, uh, Dan on index funds, but that frankly doesn't work. It actually works in the opposite direction. It actually gives you consistently lower returns because you tend to be doing this return chasing. You tend to be investing in things that have done really well recently and therefore likely to have higher relative valuations that are poised to subsequently underperform over the next three to five years. And then lastly, you have to go into say, you know, is the particular product on my platform and it doesn't have a reasonable expense ratio. And am I going to actually get good information on the product after I invest in it so that I can condition continually condition my client expectations. So uh, smart beta is just like, you know, back to your, I think one of your first questions, Dan, is smart beta active. I think in the sense of doing proper due diligence, you should do, at least at the outset, you don't have to do continual due diligence, much less so once you invest in a strategy, but at the outset, you really need to take a good hard look at, is it backed by robust research? Is the product designed with proper craftsmanship? And, uh, and am I going to get reasonable, uh, expense ratios and, uh, and support levels so that I can clearly articulate how it's doing in the market cycle relative to my client's expectations? So smart beta certainly does not cut out the due diligence portion at the outset as clients invest in it and gain comfort with it over time. Uh, you know, the due diligence and the governance gets considerably easier. 
Yeah, and I think a good point to end on, and this is good advice again, no matter what strategy you use, is once you've chosen one, once you've gone through that due diligence process, and you're comfortable with the portfolio that you've built, you know, assuming that you built it using sound principles. Just stick to it over the long term. Your strategy doesn't need to be perfect, but if you、uh, stick to a good strategy over the long term and resist that temptation to chase performance and to tinker and to get out at the wrong times, you're likely to have a good result over the very long term. Well, I think that's one of the advantages of smart beta over traditional active is that、um, because it's rules based. First off, you can condition expectations ahead of time, right? Traditional active managers might have three years, five years, you know, ten years. In some rare cases, twenty years of performance. But smart beta strategies, you have all of this data, and therefore you can say, here's generally how it's going to perform. So you're you're better you're better able to set expectations. Secondly, it's all rules based. So when a smart beta strategy does really really well, you would say, hey, look, its style is massively in favor. It's doing really well, but let's not count on this perpetually. And conversely, when it's doing really poorly, you say, "Hey, it styles out of favor.、Uh, the rules right now and the way it's built aren't aren't producing the results." But this is generally within the range that we've calibrated over the very long term. There's nothing to really see here. When you get with the active managers, by contrast, usually when they have brilliant performance, they'll come in and say, "Look at how our people, look at our philosophy, look at our process, and look at these wonderful results." And what's the first thing they say when they're when they when they start to do poorly? Our style is out of favor. Well, wait a second. Why did you say your style was in favor when you had the wonderful results? And so,、uh, with you don't have to worry whether something's quote unquote lost its touch, or whether the portfolio manager is spending more time sipping pina coladas on the beach.、Uh, so that level of due diligence gets wiped out. You just simply say, "Hey, look." This style is going to go in and out of favor, but over the long term, I expect that it's going to be it's going to be positive because of my beliefs and the research that backs it up, and therefore I'm much more able to take the swings because that's just part of it, and I don't have to mistake those swings for skill or lack thereof. All right, John. Well, that's a great note to end on. Thanks so much for joining us and for sharing all your insights with our listeners. Dan, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now it's time for another installment of Bad Investment Advice, where we take aim at myths and misunderstandings about the markets. This time around, I want to address a comment made in a recent article on MoneySense.ca, in which investment gurus were asked to do what they do best, and that is make supremely confident forecasts about how the markets will perform in the future. In his predictions for 2019, one of these commentators declared that volatility would be significant, and quote, "Investors will no longer be able to rely on indices and ETFs rising, serving to lift all boats." Close quote. This idea of a rising tide that lifts all boats is a popular myth that active managers love to use to diminish the success enjoyed by index investors. The subtext is this: when markets are strong, even simpletons who use index funds can enjoy good returns because virtually all stocks rise. Anyone who puts money in the market will do well. The stock picker's skill is admittedly less useful during these periods, but when markets are volatile, that's when the active manager has more opportunity to shine. Clearly, the stock picker in our Money Sense article thinks that we're entering this kind of period now, which is a good thing for him because his own firm's performance has lagged the benchmark over the last five years. 
But let's examine this argument and consider whether it's true that the strong equity returns in the past several years can really be characterized as a rising tide that lifts all boats. To help us understand this idea, I want to introduce a concept called dispersion. Dispersion refers to the difference in performance between the overall returns of the stock index and that of its individual components. For example, the S&P 500 index includes 500 of the largest companies in the U.S. And let's say that in one calendar year, the index as a whole returns 8%. Well, we know that the 500 companies in the index will individually have lost more or less than that. For every dollar that outperforms the index, another dollar must underperform by an equal amount. And that must be true over every period. But what can vary over time is the magnitude of those differences. So in some years, when the index returns 8%, most of the individual companies might not deliver returns too far from that average. And during such a period, we would say that there was low dispersion. But in other years, where the index also delivered 8%, many of the individual companies might have enjoyed huge gains while others suffered huge losses. And this would be a year with high dispersion. I think the best example of a market with low dispersion is residential real estate. Consider the housing market in Toronto or Vancouver over the last 20 years. You certainly didn't need to be a shrewd expert to have benefited from the housing boom in these cities. Anyone who owned a home that wasn't a grow-up would have enjoyed a substantial rise in their investment. If the overall housing market saw prices rise by, say, 12% annually, sure, some homeowners would have done a little better or worse than that, but it's not like your house would have gained 78% annually while your neighbor lost 47%. At the other end of the spectrum, a good example of a market with high dispersion is venture capital. VCs, as they're called, are early investors in startup businesses that are extremely risky. Most of these businesses will fail and the investors will lose all of their stake. But the hope is that a small number will be so successful that they will more than make up for those losses. A successful VC firm might earn a 30% overall return, but with enormous dispersion. So let's return to the stock market now and consider whether it's closer to the low dispersion housing market or the high dispersion world of venture capitalists. If it's the former, if stock markets have enjoyed a period of high returns and low dispersion, then you might accept our active manager's argument that indexers simply enjoyed a rising tide that lifted all boats. You could have simply held any handful of stocks and enjoyed excellent performance. And because of that, you might reasonably argue that it was very hard to beat the market. If dispersion in the stock market was high, however, then you'd have less of an excuse because there would have been many more opportunities for an active manager to outperform. She could have simply overweighted a few of the big winners or underweighted a few of the big losers. So let's take a look at the numbers. In 2018, a year when the S&P 500 delivered a negative return in U.S. dollars, the top 10 stocks in the index posted returns between 42% and 80%. These included TripAdvisor, Chipotle, and several others that you've never heard of. Meanwhile, the 10 worst performers lost between 49% and 67%, including General Electric and Western Digital. According to data supplied by Larry Swedrow and ETF.com, the 10 best performers in the S&P 500 in 2017 ranged from 80% to 132%, a list that included Wynn Resorts, Boeing, and PayPal. Meanwhile, the 10 biggest dogs of 2017 saw losses that ranged from 44% to 54%, including Under Armour, Mattel, and, again, General Electric. 
Swedor also notes that in 2016, when the S&P 500 returned 12% for the year, there were 25 stocks in the index that returned more than 45%, as well as 25 that lost at least 23%. Since we're on a roll, let's go back even further. A Vanguard paper on dispersion reported that, quote, the percentage of stocks that either led or trailed the index by more than 10 percentage points ranged from 67% to 79% from 2007 through 2011. Now, I don't know about you, but this does not sound like a rising tide. Although the S&P 500 posted outstanding returns over the last 10 years, about 15% annually in U.S. dollars, the performance of individual stocks in that index was nowhere close to being consistent and dependable like a tide. It was all over the place, and anyone who picked a small number of stocks had the opportunity to beat the market by identifying a few of the largest gainers or losers along the way. But how did professional money managers fare? Well, according to S&P's semi-annual report card, the percentage of U.S. equity mutual funds in Canada that beat the S&P 500 during the 10 years ending June 30th, 2018 was a pathetic 2.3%. For equity mutual funds in the U.S., the number was much better, but it was still less than 15%, meaning only one out of seven enjoyed outperformance over the 10 years. So if the record of stock pickers was so terrible during the last decade when dispersion was high and there was no rising tide that lifted all boats, why should any investor believe a manager who claims that his or her skill will be needed this year or next? It seems that every year fund managers claim this is a stock picker's market, meaning there will be opportunities to outperform the index. And every year they're right. There are opportunities. The problem is most fail to capitalize on them. Now, so far, we've only looked at the last 10 years, but I recently came across a fascinating paper that revealed just how much the returns of individual stocks vary around the market averages over the very long term. This paper by Hendrik Bassenbinder of Arizona State University is called Do Stocks Outperform Treasury Bills? And it examines the returns of all publicly traded stocks in the U.S. between 1926 and 2016. For the record, there were 25,300 of them. He found that just 42.6% of these stocks had a buy and hold return, that includes reinvested dividends, that exceeded the return of one month treasury bills during their lifetimes. Now think about that for a moment. During the 90 years covered by the study, the US stock market delivered an annualized return of 9.75%. Yet over that same period, more than half of all publicly listed companies performed worse than cash. How can this be? As Bassenbinder explains, quote, simply put, large positive returns to a few stocks offset the modest or negative returns to more typical stocks. That turns out to be something of an understatement. Bassenbinder writes that the U.S. stock market is, quote, collectively responsible for lifetime shareholder wealth creation of nearly $35 trillion. However, of the 25,300 listed companies that he looked at, the top performing 1,092 of them, that's just over 4% of the total, accounted for all of this net wealth creation. The remaining 96% of companies, the author writes, collectively generated lifetime dollar gains that matched the gains on one-month treasury bills. Now, he breaks these numbers down even further. The top 90 companies, about one-third of 1% of the total, quote, collectively account for over half of the net wealth creation. 
while the top five firms, ExxonMobil, Apple, Microsoft, IBM, and, again, General Electric, account for 10% of the total wealth creation. Bassenbinder observes that these results help to explain why poorly diversified active strategies most often underperform market averages. Indeed, it would have been possible to have been a stock picker over those 90 years and failed to hold meaningful positions in any of the most successful companies. You could have had money in the market all the time and still failed to outperform T-bills, let alone beat an index benchmark. This surprising paper should make it clear that when you invest in stocks, you have far less in common with a home buyer than you do with a venture capitalist. A VC fully expects the majority of her investments to fail, but the small number that succeed should more than offset those losses. We might not think of investing in stocks that way, but Bassenbinder's data suggests that maybe we should, at least when we consider our investments over a lifetime. It's true, stock markets have historically delivered excellent returns over long periods, but only if we measure this performance by using broadly diversified indexes. Individually, most stocks are actually terrible investments, delivering returns that don't even exceed cash despite huge volatility. So there is no tide that lifts all boats. There are only choppy seas that sink the majority of boats while guiding a small number of them to the promised land. Armed with this knowledge, the correct strategy should be obvious. Find a way to hold virtually all publicly traded stocks. This portfolio will always include every one of the big winners every year. Of course, it will also hold the losers too, but as we've seen, the large positive returns of the successful few has historically significantly offset the losses of the many. You've probably guessed how you can do this. Just build your portfolio using traditional total market index funds. Nothing could be easier or cheaper. Or you could conclude that you have the skill to identify the most seaworthy of stocks, or at least avoid the leakiest ones. But the track record of those who do this suggests it's another example of bad investment advice. And I'm not a hero, I'm an ordinary guy, very ordinary guy, who's tried to do my best for investors and who gave a damn about the people that were investing and wanted to make sure they got a fair shake. I'd like to wrap up this episode with a few words about the man whose voice you just heard, John Bogle, who passed away on January 16th at the age of 89. Back in 1975, Jack, as he always liked to be called, was running a new firm called the Vanguard Company out of Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. He created a new fund called the First Index Investment Trust, which used a radical strategy. It tried to replicate the performance of the S&P 500 by simply buying and holding all of the stocks in the index. By doing so, Bogle created the first index fund available to individual investors. Now, if you've only started investing in the past 10 years or so, it's hard to appreciate how much index funds were derided during that era, and indeed for at least 20 years afterwards. Nowadays, active managers feel threatened by index funds and ETFs because both the academic evidence and their own performance has long shown that most will lag their own benchmarks. But in 1975, these data either didn't exist or were not well known, and the idea of a passive index tracking mutual fund wasn't just silly, it was offensive. A Google search can still turn up a now-famous poster from the period showing a grinning Uncle Sam declaring index funds to be un-American. 
Jack Bogle was mocked for the idea, and his fund was so unpopular it initially raised just $11 million that in the beginning it did not even have enough assets to buy round lots of all 500 stocks. You probably know how this story ends. Today that modest experiment has evolved into the Vanguard 500 fund, which has some $400 billion in assets. And overall, the Vanguard Group manages over $5 trillion in assets, making it the world's largest mutual fund provider. But my goal here isn't to applaud an investment firm for its huge success. Instead, I want you to consider what effect Jack Bogle and Vanguard have had on all of us as investors. You would think that the guy who founded the largest fund company in the world would be worth billions, but you'd be wrong by at least an order of magnitude. Bogle's estimated net worth when he passed away was about $80 million, which is wealthy compared to you and me. But it makes him a pauper when you consider that the current CEO of Fidelity Investments, for example, is worth over $16 billion. The reason Bogle did not become uber-rich is because he structured Vanguard in a unique way. It's not a publicly traded company, nor is it controlled by private shareholders. Rather, the company is owned by the funds themselves, and of course the funds are collectively owned by their unit holders. So it's not quite accurate to say that it's a non-profit, but as Vanguard likes to put it, we never have to weigh what's best for clients against what's best for the company's owners because they're one and the same. It isn't going too far to say that Bogle essentially donated Vanguard to its investors. As William Bernstein put it, it's almost as if Ford or Procter & Gamble issued shares to the people who bought their cars and soap, or if Bill Gates had given away a piece of Microsoft to each purchaser of Windows. Bogle put a very low ceiling on the amount that he would personally earn from Vanguard's success, and by doing so, some experts estimate that it has saved investors at least $250 billion in fund fees, and much more if you factor in the company's effect on lowering fees across the industry. As one of my Twitter followers put it so eloquently, he chose not to be a billionaire so that countless others could be millionaires. If you're an investor who uses index funds or ETFs today, you're able to build a portfolio of thousands of stocks at almost trivial cost, something that not only was impossible a generation ago, but almost unthinkable 45 years ago when Bogle pioneered that first index fund. Sir Isaac Newton famously said, If I have seen further than others, it is by standing upon the shoulders of giants. I like to think about that quote when I consider all the books and blogs and podcasts devoted to an investing philosophy that we now take for granted. As indexers, if any of us has managed to see through the smokescreen of the investment industry and the financial media, it's because we're all standing on the shoulders of Jack Bogle. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Canadian Couch Potato Podcast, and thanks to everyone who has left ratings or reviews on iTunes. It really does help spread the word. We'll see you next time.